0: Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the finale of our top 40 series, our top 40 careers series that we have been making our way through. During the summer, we started what seems like months ago, Cody, with honorable mentions and Isaiah Thomas, and we've made our th- way through a, a very fun, exciting, amazing list of players in NBA history. Last time, we threw the, the curveball, not the honorable mention, but we talked about the guys who weren't on this list that are on um, a lot of other lists. I love that conversation. Today, we have to put a bow. We have to put a ribbon. On this entire thing. And we have to talk about the player with the most valuable career in NBA history based on this criteria. And of course, this is the sort of Mount Rushmore, the, the goat candidates that you often see from the 1960s, Bill Russell, from the 1970s, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, from the 80s and 90s, Michael Jordan, and from the 2000s, the 2010s, the 2020s, and the 2030s, LeBron James, who feels like he's been playing forever at a high level, it's getting it's getting a little ridiculous. I don't. How do you feel about this athlete longevity these days? Where Tom Brady's like fifty and he's and he's playing football. Roger Federer just retired from tennis. He played for like nineteen years. I, I don't know what's going on. How do you, what do you make of it?
1: Well. I actually want to turn this around and ask you a question. How were people making of Kareem in the late 80s? That's what I want to know, because people had to have been watching him in, like, 87 and being like, what is going on? How is this guy still, like, just destroying people with this hookshot?
0: I feel like because it was the hookshot, because people don't love big men, because it was Kareem and his reputation and all the stuff going on in his life in the, in the 70s in the United States, like, I feel like it was kind of brushed aside. But if it was a figure – if it was a different kind of figure that was beloved and he kept going at this level, I feel like people would have been losing their minds because because Kareem played – he played uh, three years at UCLA, but you couldn't play as a freshman. So he was at UCLA for all four years. And I think, Cody, that Kareem was a top three NBA player when he was in college, that, I don't even that doesn't even feel like a hot take. Like, I feel like clearly he was one of the three best basketball players in the world when he was in college at the end of the 60s before he ever played a game with the Bucs. He made his debut on October 17th, 1969 against the Pistons, and uh, he, he, he was, as expected, he was one of the best players in the league right away.
1: I kind of like the will play we talked about a couple episodes ago where there's like the flash and he's catching the ball at 13 feet. There's a similar type of, of I've never seen the actual play live, but there's like an image of Kareem in college and he's like catching a shot and he's basically like ducking his head to not hit it on the rim. And I feel like that's a interesting thing about Kareem as you think about the hook shot. But like early Kareem was really, really athletic for being what was he seven? Was he seven, four, seven, three?
0: Well he was seven I think he was seven two, maybe a little bit over seven two barefoot. And so that means that if you do the height inflation and you do the thing with shoes, that he certainly could have been listed at seven four and gotten away with it. I mean, that's basically what happened to Ralph Sampson. Ralph Sampson and Kareem, when you look at them together, are probably pretty similar in height. FYI, if you can find a picture with Bill Walton in there, he's he's lying. Bill is tall. Bill is lying about his height. He's extremely tall. Um but so Kareem, there are between that and the hair, when he came into the league, back when he was known as Lou Alcinder, you can find these old games where broadcasters are like, There he is the seven foot five Kareem Abdul Jabbar. And it doesn't sound crazy in the sense that he just looks that much bigger than everyone else. It's kind of like Victor Wembanyana on the court today. You're just like, you're just like, oh my god, how does that guy move like that? and make everyone else look so teeny. I've seen,
1: speaking of Victor for a second, I've seen three play exactly three plays of him, and I'm, I'm number one pick. That's it. I don't need anyone else. My scouting work is done. My big board is done. It's him.
0: Apparently scoots number two. That's the end of it. I'm never talking about the draft again. This is not a crystal ball episode, Cody. We're not trying to talk about who else will be on the GOAT-Mount Rushmore list. We've got to focus on these guys today, Kareem, LeBron, Jordan, and Russell. Um since we've been talking about Kareem and we've been talking about great rookie, I mean, I think he had one of the great rookie seasons ever. And I think the critical thing to kind of understand about the breadth of his longevity is that this dude was like an MVP level player when he set foot on the court in the NBA in 1969, 1970 season. And what did he win finals MVP? And, 1985, 16 years later, when he was like 38 years old. And he may have not been an MVP. He may have only been an MVP level player for like 14 years or whatever it was, you know, just ridiculous. He won his last MVP in 1980. Another thing is with Kareem, when you talk about this functional longevity of being this good, it feels to me like a lot of NBA fans don't know the answer to the trivia question who has the most MVPs in NBA history? And not only does Kareem have the most points in NBA history, but he won six MVPs in real life and uh, was was very, very good through the mid-80s. And then, like, maybe 1989, his final season is kind of a swan song, and, um, you know, he's not at the same level. But you can watch Lakers games from, like, the 87 season, that great 87 Lakers team. And they're still throwing it in to Kareem. And he's just a specialized assassin with that sky hook. And then because he's so tall, and as we talked about a couple episodes ago, height ages really well, he's like still a rim protector in that system. So you have a player who's like an MVP level player for 14 years, and then basically like a really good functional player in the NBA for 17 or 18 years in an era where most careers were about 10 years long. Doesn't even make any sense.
1: Do you, do you want to talk about just how good Kareem was at his peak?
0: You want to start there? I, I, we'll, we can talk about anything today. I mean, are you, are you asking me, does Kareem have like a case for a top five or top three peak of all time?
1: Well, here's the thing about Kareem that, you know, I I think I've been going back and forth with you a few times about this. Like Kareem, especially in the later 70s, I think even the, the early 70s when he his defense is still probably more on point. I guess he is stronger in the late later 70s, but I'm not really sure what to do with his defense at that point. But in the later 70s, he has, you know, what you might consider to be some of the greatest postseason scoring runs in NBA history. This is a, a big man that was creating at a level that, like, the NBA hadn't seen big men create it. Like, if you look at pretty much any season the 70s, he's like the top 10 in the league for for box creation if you look in your database. Um, his outlet passing, I think, is pretty underrated. Uh, Half-court passing, like I said, pretty good. His defense, you know, not like all-time level defense, but he's still moving the needle defensively. And when I take all that together, I'm like, does this guy have a shot at having the best peak in NBA history?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't know if for me... There's like a super strong, compelling argument. Now, one thing that gets interesting that we talked about a couple episodes ago so we won't completely circle the wagons again is they played so many possessions back then that you could say the range on how we look at how effective he is as a basketball player might be a little wider. Hmm. Because if you say, well, I think per possession, Kareem's gravity in the 70s is actually maybe a little better. Maybe his passing is a little bit better Uh, maybe his defense is a little bit better, and you make that change on a per-possession basis, it actually gets compounded. It's actually a bigger change per game because he's playing so many possessions in the early part of the 70s. So maybe there's some argument to get him up to the GOAT peak. But I think it's easy to see Kareem as having one of the best peaks of all time. Um, I had his 1977 and 1979 peak pretty high. In Greatest Peaks, a lot of the voters in our Patreon community, I think, had him even higher. And frankly, I I default to them on that. I think they have a pretty good uh, argument or case for him having like, you know, I mean, frankly, Kareem's peak could start in 1974. That's where I would start it. I would say that stretch from like 1974 through the mid-late 70s. He's at his very best now. Unfortunately, he gets traded, and they miss the playoffs. And there's uh, injuries, sometimes self-inflicted injury. He he broke his hand. <laughs> he broke his hand, uh, you know, punching things, stuff like that. But I think that period, it's pretty easy to argue that he has one of the five best peaks in NBA history. And then to where we started, when you realize like he's racking up years of that quality. It's not that far off from a Michael Jordan kind of, you know, if I drafted this guy for a decade, I should expect to win a ton of championships. And I mean, his results with his teams were, were great. You know, he, he, he won five championships with the Lakers, but 1971, the Bucks win the title with one of the great teams ever. We can talk about expansion at the time and we can talk about the split leagues, but they win the title in 1971. 1972, they're also great. They lose in a super team showdown series to the Lakers. Very similar regular season profiles on those teams, but they actually outscored the Lakers in that series. I have no reason to believe that those teams aren't comparable. And then 1974, even as Oscar Robertson is aging out, the Bucks make the finals and are very close, maybe a couple officiating calls or a couple buckets, very close to winning a title in '74 against Boston. And then in 77, when he goes to the Lakers, does not have a great or ideal supporting cast, as I talked about, in Greatest Peaks. And that team finishes with the best record in basketball and makes the Western Conference Finals, only to lose to Blazer Mania. The, the Blazers were just clicking on another level that other teams couldn't match in 77. And then, of course, Magic Johnson comes to town in 1980 and they start ripping off titles. So I think he very much has the track record that fits with this idea of a player having a very high peak that he's sustaining for a very very long time and already we're talking about you know that's like a top 10 player of all time it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle
1: a run it's only for the fans So let's leave the implications of him maybe having like a goat peak aside for right now. Let's just let's just push that to the side. Um, and, you know, going back to 74, I'm pretty sure this is, I think it was game six. I don't think it was game seven. Game six, I think it's the the game where Havlicek just goes nuts for a few minutes. Like the last quarter and a half show up and he makes like five straight mid-range shots. They're just running him off triple staggers off the baseline. He's hitting ridiculous shots over Kareem. And, you know, at that point, if a couple of those go another way, there's a chance, I don't know, maybe the maybe the Bucks walk away with the championship, but that what-if game's a little too much. But anyway, what I want to lead up to is not everyone always holds that opinion about Kareem. Uh, you brought up the Discord. We actually have a couple questions from Discord users and somebody by the name of Body Scarns from Discord. Body uh, Scarns. Body Scarns. <laughs> it's a great name. That's excellent. Basically asks, like, what is Kareem's low end evaluation for his offense? If we, uh, given the fact that maybe his his offense dropped off against top defenses, especially in a diluted league. So I guess there's two parts. Like did Kareem actually drop off
0: against stronger defenses? And if so, like what does that do with his offensive range in your mind? So this is from our, our thinking basketball discord, uh, thinking basketball, We have a Discord community that helps with projects and things like that. They help with Greatest Peaks, Uh, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball if you're interested in joining and, and signing up there. So the idea is early in his career, Kareem has some incredible, incredible regular season scoring numbers, right? Like actually, I think if you go to Basketball Reference and you look up Kareem it almost looks like he's better when he's younger, right? Like his mm-hmm. stats. And I think a lot of that is just because the league is, is is truly diluted. You had rapid expansion. The league went from like nine teams to 18 teams in a handful of years at the end of the 60s and early 70s. And in addition to that the ABA was spawned and the ABA was pulling talent. Rick Barry left for the ABA, Julius Irving, George Gervin, all these other guys went, they're really good players at the high end in the ABA. So you had a league that had less talent, less competition that allows Kareem to come in and put up better numbers when he's younger. But the spirit of the question is, if you actually look at the playoff numbers, he doesn't look better. It doesn't look like his peak. So His regular season scoring numbers were incredible, like 29 points per 75 adjusted for league environment at 11 percentage points ahead of the league in true shooting. If you're new to the series, uh, that just basically means he's about a 29 or 30 point per game scorer in modern terms. And it means that his points per shot, you know, adding free throws as a shot um, put him at about, you know, If league average is 55% on those shots, he's at like 66%. Another way to think of true shooting is take all free throws and three-point shots and convert them to two-pointers. What would your percentage be? That's what true shooting is. So if league average is 55, Kareem's at 66, that's astounding. Uh, For the regular season, that's 99th percentile all-time in volume and 99th percentile all-time in efficiency. He has that in 1971 in his second year. And he has that in 1972 again in his third year. And this is happening as he's becoming a better passer. And I think he really improves uh, in the passing numbers statistically from 1970 to 1973. And in 1973, again, another great scoring year. The NBA is probably the the quality of competition is probably getting a little bit better compared to 1971. But Cody, when you look to the playoffs, his scoring numbers in those early years are down. Now you'll see something like 24 points per 75 plus 6%. 24 points per 75 minus 3%. 20 per 75 minus 3%. And so the question is, like, what's going on there? How does he change as a player through the middle and later parts of the decade? I have been on record as saying I think his peak was later on. Um, I think he added muscle. I think he added strength. And I think guys that could, like, figure out how to sit on that sky hook and push him off his spot had some effectiveness, but to answer the question directly from our, our friend, body Scarns, um, his numbers against like good and bad defenses. We've talked about it before in this series. If you look at defenses that were two points ahead of the league in terms of their season long efficiency or two points worse than the league. And you say, we call them good and bad defenses. His numbers are, in line with most players they don't get better they're not great against weak defenses during that period but we we looked them up right before the show and they you know he loses a couple points per game and his efficiency goes down a little but that's that's pretty standard so I don't think it was something about crumbling against strong defenses at that point I just think he just keeps getting a little bit better overall as a player through the rest of the decade.
1: I was looking up some numbers, too, to maybe to back this up a little bit, see what the context is. And the the best way that I could separate is like, all right, he played 16 games against Nate Thurman between 1970 and 73, and then he plays 25 playoff games not against Nate Thurman. Now, I find this really interesting because you said there's really not much of a change between uh, good, bad defense, at least not to the point where you'd be like concerned about it. But in the twenty five playoff games these are these are more raw numbers you know i didn't i didn't era adjusted or anything like that so in the twenty five playoff games without going against Nate Thurmond, he averaged thirty one and a half points per game on fifty five point six percent true shooting in the sixteen games against Nate Thurmond, those dropped down to twenty four point four points hmm. per game on forty six point eight percent true shooting so like a negative eight drop off in both statistical categories whenever you face Nate Thurman. So is that like a a case like you're talking about, like Nate Thurman just like had his number, Kareem didn't have the tools to go up against a strong defensive player, or is this also just like another notch in Thurman's belt where it's like, this is actually probably one of the best defensive players in history?
0: Yeah, if you don't know, Nate Thurman is one of the great defenders in league history, and maybe more so than someone like Russell his calling card was this incredible post defense he was very strong um, he was he was long and mobile really cool to see Nate Thurman play in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four during that wilt Chamberlain project and they would play him at like small forward and he was agile enough to get around screens so you have to think almost maybe like a Kevin Garnett you almost have to think of a guy who 's really long mobile and also very strong and could probably play the angles and understood what was happening in the post, made him a devastating post defender. And, yeah, that's a great example. Like, you got to go up against Nate Thurman and you haven't figured out how to solve that riddle yet. It's going to be hard for everyone, even Kareem. And um, maybe an older Kareem could have done better. Like, when I see film, I do think his ability to score, his his outside shot his passing reads and setting up in the positions that he wants to set up in are a little bit sturdier as he gets older. He puts on weight. That's another underrated thing about Kareem. You can watch. There's a couple of great documentaries about him and he was really into martial arts and pliability and flexibility trained with Bruce Lee and he gets stronger. He builds up his legs throughout the seventies and into the early eighties. And I think that's something that, that helped in this regard. So, um, yeah, still still a fantastic player and scorer, but um Nate, Thur- Nate Thurman Nate just shuts everyone down. No, oh, he's just incredible. And you know, you you were talking about he added some more tools.
1: In the late in the late seventies, I feel like he was able to call on that post fade a little bit more. Like it wasn't just the hook shot. Like he had the right hand and you know the left hand hook was it wasn't as pretty. Like he had it, but I liked him being able to counter with a post fade a little bit more that felt a little bit more accurate. And then, you know, comparing the numbers in the late seventies, like his nineteen seventy-seven nineteen seventy-seven playoff scoring, especially if you filter for players that played at least four hundred minutes in the playoffs. That has to be one of the greatest scoring postseasons in in NBA history. I mean, he averages 31.2 points per 75 possessions on plus 13.7. So this is we talked about in an earlier episode, how rare it is to hit the 30 plus 10. And here he is. He's, he's increasing both those 31 on plus almost 14. And, you know, like he doesn't quite hit those heights. But again, in 1980, right? 1980, 29.6 on plus 9.9. So just barely missing that 30 plus 10 mark so this is a dude that once once he hits that height like in the playoffs he was just rolling and that's kind of where i started with my first thing where i'm like i think we might be looking at a guy that that might have a good chance of having a goat level peak
0: in other in other words there's a reason he's the all-time leading scorer in nba history and it wasn't because he jacked up a ton of shots it was because he was really efficient and had this move that was uh almost like a cheat code in basketball, especially a post-centric basketball that was played back then. And then defensively, there's that question mark of like, you know, how, how good was he defensively? Uh, we know he was a devastating shot blocker. He was criticized at times for effort and things like that. Played a ton of minutes and he just had this very fluid, smooth, lanky movement, but didn't have a crazy high motor. And so when your team starts losing which happened in the middle of the decade, people look for reasons to criticize. Of course, there's the famous scene from Airplane, uh, you know, Roger Murdoch up in the cockpit. But I, that, I think I put that cut in his greatest peaks profile yeah, you did. You did. at some point in there, yeah. But but defensively, if if you look at what's happening with the Bucks in these seasons, I mean, their playoff defenses are absolutely phenomenal at the beginning of the decade, like, Ninety ninth percentile, literally in the ninety ninth percentile uh, in nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy two, and then still, you know, in the top eightieth percentile in nineteen seventy three. So they're very good defenses. And then in nineteen seventy seven, the Lakers again have a good defense. Now Kareem starts to get a little older, and that falls off. But it's always been fascinating to me to see the Lakers' defensive success in the first half of the eighties. And I don't think a lot of people think about the Lakers defensively we've talked about James Worthy being underrated in this series you also have guys out there like Michael Cooper but Coop didn't play 40 minutes a game and he wasn't a rim protector Byron Scott you could say maybe as a solid defender you throw your Kurt Rambis is out there but I, I do think it speaks very well to how effective Kareem was as a rim protector that later in his career not in, not necessarily in the regular season But in the postseason, you still end up with like top 25% defenses in the playoffs over multiple seasons in the 80s, looking at um, not only just how teams perform, excuse me, how the Lakers performed against other teams' offenses based on their regular season stature, but using that method we've talked about a couple times in this series where we look at common opponents just in the playoffs and say, like, how did other teams... Team's defenses fare against the Lakers' opponents compared to how the Lakers' opponents fared against them. And they look even better. Like they look like they have a nice, good defense. And I always thought, especially from like 1980 to 1986, 1987 ish for Kareem, that boded fairly well for like how good he could have been or maybe was defensively in his prime because if you bring up his his team stats from like 1971 to 1987 in the playoffs is just all good defensive numbers all the way down i don't think that's a coincidence first i love that you say in 1977 he starts getting older
1: and you look at basketball reference and like that's a third of his career like he he still has the majority of his career to go uh but yeah when you when you go to the tape like the rim protection is just off the charts like he's I, I don't remember who you talked about with it. Maybe maybe it was David Robinson, one of the, the Greatest Peaks videos, just how quickly a player can get high. And Kareem, just because of his length, his height, also the athleticism, he gets really high really quickly and really good at meeting the, the ball to Apex, maybe getting him some goaltends once in a while. But I thought he was able, able to make some pretty incredible blocks. But beyond that, like the the horizontal game, like the the positional awareness we talk about with like Kevin Garnett, I don't think that's quite there. And like you said, maybe it has to do with a lot of, you know, having an enormous load on offense, playing all the minutes, et cetera, et cetera. He,
0: he's huge as well. Yeah. Like, he's it's also... difficult to move your body laterally 20 feet away from the hoop.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he has the shot blocking ability, but is this a case of like a, a player whose offensive and defensive primes don't quite match up? Like if the, the Bucks seem to have like all-time level defenses and then maybe the, the late 70s Lakers are like, you know, top quartile defenses like... I don't know. Do you think that he peaked defensively in the early 70s and then peaked offensively in the late 70s? And because of that, he didn't quite, you know, like we talked about with Kawhi Leonard, he didn't quite have as high of an all-time peak if you just combined the best offense
0: and defense? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly how I see it. Now, the difference is, because they're relatively close together, like maybe you could say Kareem peaks defensively in his second or third season. I mean, I don't know. For Kareem and for Bill Russell today... It's murky because we don't have as much footage from some of the seasons. In Russell's case, we have a good number of games, just like with Wilt, because the Celtics were so popular and they won. Um, and we'll talk about Russell in a second. But it's very difficult to, like, zoom in and hone down and be like, well, clearly this is what happens between late 1972 and early 1973. They worked on this. We didn't have that co- like level of granularity covering the game going back that far in time. So it looks to me like... He peaks defensively in his early 70s because he's young, he's more spry, he's got a little bit uh, of a heavier or a stronger motor, I should say. And then not too far after that, I think mid-late 70s, you're talking about just like absolutely unbelievable offensive peak for a big man. We talked about it earlier in the series that there's only a couple of big men offensively I would take over him at his peak, and one of the rare centers that you could say this is like a championship offensive centerpiece. Like you just, no pun intended, you just put him in the post and teams are going to have to double team him. He has some gravity off ball. You can play inside out through him. The Bucks did a great job of spacing the floor for the time and throwing it into him with space and allowing him to move into space and then hit cutters or uh, Cody's favorite player, John McLaughlin on the weak side. You got to think of like a Steve Kerr, JJ Redick guy who could flash off screens and shoot. So all of these made very successful or could make very successful offenses. And I think because they weren't too far apart, because from my assessment he probably peaks in the early 70s defensively and then in the mid to late 70s offensively you you end up with like a ton of all-time seasons in a row right it's it's not as great as if you put them together in the same season but it's like when do i think kareem had his first all-time season probably 1972 when do i think he had his last all-time season maybe 1979 you know that's like that's like a lot of really great seasons. And then, oh, ho hum, he's only a strong MVP in nineteen eighty when he wins his last MVP. And I think by nineteen eighty-three, for me, you're probably talking about like an all NBA level player. Then at that point he's kind of he's kind of coming down the aging curve, but he has such a gentle landing, you know? It's like here's the runway and we're just gonna put it down and the wheels are just barely gonna touch. And the tray tables are not going to move. It is just a beautiful last couple of years of his career. That was beautiful, Ben.
1: That was beautiful. Now, for, for the all-time peaks, though, you said 72 to, like, 79-ish. Uh, what do you do about, like, the couple of seasons where they don't make the playoffs? Because he's not in the playoffs in 75 and 76. Do you do you still have that in part of the all-time band? Or do you see a little bit of a fluctuation with a couple of those years in there?
0: Um, I think they're... Down years, I mean, 76 to me is a lot better than 75. I guess that's the answer. But, you know, it's hard sometimes if a guy doesn't get into the playoffs to give him the same credit if he jumps his game in the playoffs. You know, LeBron is like that. LeBron got to a certain point in his career where he's like, playoff LeBron was a very real thing, but then with the Lakers, he misses the playoffs and he's older. And you're genuinely like, I I don't know if he could have done what he's been doing in the last few seasons in the playoffs. I don't know if his body was in the right place or if his mind was in the right place or things like that. But I I do think Kareem is pretty consistently quite good. Maybe I I do see 75 as a little bit of a down year. And there were things there where, you know, he wanted to get out of Milwaukee again for off-court reasons. I'll I'll point people um, to, to some great documentaries on him like Minority of One and things like that where you can learn more about that. But with Kareem Cody, we just talked about performance against... Elite defenses or good defenses and quote unquote weak defenses. Um, Bill Russell, we'll come back to. He's he's Bill Russell's case is so unique because he's just a defensive guy, whereas LeBron and Jordan are modern players, and we have more of the same kinds of data about LeBron and Jordan, and they play in an era of basketball that's more similar to the style of basketball that Kareem and Russell played in half a century ago, LeBron, of course, his career is like spanned into a new style of basketball when he started. And maybe even when he exploded in 2009, that was closer to the style of basketball Jordan played at his heyday in the 90s when they were winning championships. And all of a sudden, we're recording this on the eve of the 2023 season. And it's like, 2023 basketball is so different than 2009 basketball because of the spacing and the shooting and just rapid expansion of tactics that would frankly blow the old teams out of the water. But with all that said, we can look at how Jordan and LeBron also fared against weak or strong defenses to kind of size up their performances or think about them as scores. LeBron's really interesting Because if you look at his numbers, I I had it for greatest peaks from 2009 to 2014. The scoring rate doesn't really seem to change. And the true shooting percentage, there's a small decline. It's about a three percentage point decline. But again, that's pretty consistent with what you would expect to see when you go up against better defenses. And then, you know, there's the question of, like, what else happens? Interestingly enough, his assist numbers go way down against good defenses. That's one of the only big statistical changes. Like, he gets to the free throw rate the same amount of time. He takes the exact same number of threes per 36 minutes. He makes, bu- makes them at 35% against good defenses and against weak defenses. We talked about this with Kevin Garnett, with Larry Bird. There are other players that you put them up against better defenses, and all of a sudden, maybe it's harder for them to get three-point shots because maybe they're exposing something in weak defenses that good defenses cover up really well doesn't seem to be the case with LeBron when we look at someone like Jordan I think people might be a little surprised to hear that Jordan well his volume of scoring doesn't change when you look at good defenses or uh, quote unquote good defenses or weak defenses this is from like 1988 to 1993 that incredible period that he had uh that mostly i talk about in greatest peaks the volume doesn't change and again his true shooting percentage goes down about four percentage points which might be you know it's about what we expect or might be a little bit more than what we expect so all of those guys i think are kind of on the same ground there uh three of the greatest scorers In league history I don't know if you want to talk more about Jordan today I I did you know I did just do another video on the evolution of him at the beginning of the summer so I, I would point people to that we can hit Jordan where we need to hit but Russell is not going to be in this conversation as a scorer because that's not his calling card at all the question with Russell is like was his defense was his offense a positive or a negative
1: I think that's a really interesting conversation. That's where I want to go with this right now. Stay stay with the time period. Maybe go up to the to the two guys that people are maybe most excited about hearing about. But I think Russell's a really interesting conversation because you just said you want to know like what his offense is like. Like I I don't know. I think his peak offensive season in the playoffs seems to be like 1962. According to your database, he averages like 16.6 points per 75 on plus six. Like, those are John Stockton. It's like John Stockton scoring numbers, right? (laughs) John Stockton scoring numbers. But when you talk about creation, like we talked about Kareem, you know, top 10 in the league, like even compared to guards, Russell's getting like fewer than one original creation per game. Like a lot of the, the passing action they do is they would like set him up on the free throw line. And it was kind of like a proto split type action where they'd give it to him and a couple of guards to kind of run at him and you know, stuff would happen. He's not necessarily making the reads, not saying he couldn't make reads, but like that was mostly how they used him. And so he's, I, I don't think he's getting a lot of value from, from passing and creation necessarily. So when we take like the scoring numbers that, you know, aren't really moving the needle that much, they're, they're efficient. Not all the time, but in that season, they're efficient. And we also take these creation numbers. Where do you place him offensively? Is this an overall slightly negative offensive player? Do you put him at neutral? Do you think he's not hurting the team much, so he's actually a plus a little bit? I don't know. How did you place his offense?
0: I think his offense when he's younger and the seasons you're talking about is a slight positive. Um, When he was younger, let's just take a step back. With Russell... One of the craziest things about him is that he looks so consistent, regardless of what year you get a game from. You get a game from 1959, or you can get a game from 1969, and you're like, what the heck? Does anything change with this guy? What is going on? Now, things that do change as he gets older, his motor gets a little um, tuned down. What's a, good, what's a better way to say that, when your, motor, when your motor gets tired or whatever? Could you just say he motors down? I, sure I can say whatever yeah, just, he revs down I don't know just, just I'm not saying, saying ittar talk here I, I was hoping I was hoping you could have better command of the language than I could um so his his, his motor not as good okay <laughs> just trust me on this one uh not quite as spry or bouncy or as athletic in terms of like sprinting out in transition um maybe some of the explosiveness on moves around the basket as an offensive rebounder, but otherwise it's like the same game, Cody, which is kind of remarkable. And even defensively, even as he loses some of that and he wants to conserve more energy and he might not be quite as explosive. I alluded to this a couple episodes ago, his 1968, 1969 run and his performance in the playoffs from the games that we have I mean, he's just so quick off the ground, and he's so long, and his timing and his instincts for when to jump are so incredible. I think a fascinating thing with Russell is, like, what would he be as a modern player if he truly kept the same weak hand-eye coordination as, like, a shooter? Because he was never a good shooter. And there's no evidence that neurologically, if we go back to our athleticism pod, like it's just not hardwiring in there for great shooting. He talks about this in um, his, his biography, and he's basically like, I always had a hard time shooting. If you look at his free throw percentage numbers, I think they were always in the 50s. Maybe he hit the 60s sometimes. It was never great. And if you look at his form from the free throw line or his jump shot, it is, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. But, as an offensive rebounder, as a guy who could, in the modern game, catch lobs putbacks, get out in transition, absolutely get out in transition as a huge dude. I mean he he was like a a track star. This was a sprinter. He would have been absolutely fantastic. and then defensively, he had that he had that value, I just think, for most of his career. If anything, it might look like it takes him a year or two to maybe fully ramp up as he gets into the league and as he's being integrated with the Celtics and as they play him more and things like that. But what happens is he just starts playing the whole game and they platoon these other players around him for like a decade. And you'd watch a game from 1962 and you're like, there's Russell doing Russell things and the opponent having to be wary of going in the lane against him. And you watch a game from 1969 and it's almost equally as impressive. So that's the craziest thing about Russell to me, maybe to answer your question about 62 or whatever, 60 and 62. I think he was a slight positive because he, he can t- uptick his scoring a little bit with a few a few post moves that, combined with the offensive rebounding and the transition, give him this nice little positive offensive efficiency on mid-level volume. And I wouldn't poo-poo his passing, Cody, because even though he's not traditionally drawing attention the ability for him as the center to serve as the hub of the offense, it's a little like Draymond Green with the Warriors being able to let four skilled players move around him as he plays point guard or operates from the elbow. He Russell wasn't catching in the midpost to score most of the time. He was catching to pass. And as you said, it's like proto split cuts. And he was one of the better passing centers doing that kind of action in the 60s and 70s. And I think it helped create a little space in the Celtics half-court offense. And so the whole combination of the thing where he's not taking too much off the table, but he's doing all those things well, I think makes him a slight positive offensive player in the first half of the decade. As he gets older and he loses some of that, I think you lose some of that value, and I do view him as a negative by the time you get to the end of his career. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com.
1: That's BlueNile.com. And, you know, I don't necessarily want it to seem like I'm negative on bills, passing i think it's more like the volume is actually significant lower like he's not creating those dents and making the passes i i do think he's a good passer he just wasn't used as much and i think in the modern game he would definitely be used in more of a role where he's a hub trying to make a dent setting up his teammates and things like that uh we actually have another question from the discord we're talking about 1962 and question from the discord this is from casey number three i don't know where casey number one or two are they their questions weren't good enough to make the cut but the third one good for you uh Basically, the question is, like, how did Bill Russell win MVP in 1962? Like, what's going on there? And for context, like, Russell averages 19, 24, four and a half assists. This is also the same season. Wilt averages 50 a game, and Oscar averages a triple-double. And so, like, what's going on here? Was he viewed as the best player in the league at the time? Um, I don't know. I don't want to reframe Casey number three's question, but talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, uh, the players voted, and I think with so few statistics, now, of course, there was a focus, as I talk about in Thinking Basketball, the book, on points, or points, rebounds, and assists, and so one camp thinks, how can Wilt not win this regular season MVP? He scored 50 a game, that's absolutely incredible. Didn't he grab 25 rebounds a night that year as well? So, you know, that's Wilt's case, and... The Warriors, Wilt's team, the Philadelphia Warriors, they had the second-best record uh, in the East. They had a pretty good point differential. They finished 49-31. and 31. So that's, that's, that's a good candidacy. The thing is, the Celtics not only won 60 games. They basically lapped the field. So in a nine-team league, the Celtics outscored teams by more than eight points per game. The next best team was around plus two or plus three. No one was even close to them. And I think with Russell also having, uh, at least in the box score in the regular season, a good offensive year. As you said, he finishes by averaging 19 points per game, 24 rebounds per game, and five assists per game, and the Celtics being that dominant. And then the couple games that he misses, you know, he misses a handful of games that season. It's like playing Boston feels a lot easier For everyone else in the handful of games, I think Tommy Heinsohn famously said something like, Russell's shot blocking is worth 50 points per game. (laughs) That's a slight exaggeration. (laughs) I I don't think when he went out, the Celtics were being outscored by 42 points a night. But you get the idea that there was a reverence for this. And so certainly if it were modern day, you probably would have had a split and you probably would have had a debate about it. But in the regular season, you have this massive defensive impact from Russell going up against a very good year from Wilt that we talked about a couple episodes ago and Russell won out ultimately with the player voting. Do we do we have those voting results? Here they are. I got them. Russell got 51 first place votes, Oscar Robertson 13, Wilt Chamberlain 9, our old friend Jerry West 1962 he hasn't even he hasn't even ascended. To peak Jerry West yet, he gets six. Elgin Baylor gets three. This was, this was back in a time when they were just handing out MVP votes to everybody, which maybe is a better way to do it. Maybe it's less groupthink back then than there is today. But that, that's kind of the status of the, of the 1962 season. And I think it segues us nicely into the question of how good could Russell's defense have been? Could it have been as valuable as a guy scoring 50 points per game?
1: This is okay. So you're in your original profiles. You wrote hundreds of thousands of words, pages, hours of reading, and there's always one thing, one thing that stuck out stood out to me more than any of it. And it takes place in Bill Russell's profile, and it's 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 when you pull the rug out from everyone, where you show like the defensive rate, the relative defensive ratings of like the '60s, and the, the Bill Russell Celtics are just like. So much better than ever. So much better. And you're like, by the way, here's every other relative defense of all time. And it looks like a joke. Like, it looks like a mistake how much better Bill Russell's Celtics were when he was on the court. Now, I guess my question with that is, like, I, I'm pretty sure those numbers were regular season. Did you see the same sorts of impact in the playoffs as well for the Celtics?
0: Uh, It's not quite as extreme in the playoffs. Now I will say from 1957 to 1969, our estimates of playoff defense have the Celtics as a good playoff defense every year, basically. So then the question becomes, you know, how accurate are these estimates? Just for people to understand, we don't actually have play by play going back in time. We don't actually know the true points per possession of these teams because We don't know the number of possessions they played. So we have ways to estimate the number of possessions. And once you get turnovers in the box score in 1974, we can do a good job of estimating that. Before 1974, we need to be a little bit more creative and our errors get a little bit higher. But late 60s, mid 60s, things like that, we can do a pretty good job. We can can take this method and test it against random different eras And usually most teams are within like a point of their efficiency, something like that. So in the regular season, we have a really good idea that the Celtics were the defensive juggernaut that you just described. Just this outlying comical defensive juggernaut. I'm going to read their uh, estimated efficiencies and the percentile historically from 1955 to present season, starting when Russell arrived 97th percentile, 96th percentile, 99th percentile, 98th percentile, and now you get to 1961 and just buckle up. 99th percentile, 99th percentile, 100th percentile, 100th percentile, 100th percentile. And again, you know, some, some people say you technically can't have 100th percentile. I'm just saying, like, in the database that we use, it rounds once you get high enough. And that means you're talking about one of the top 10, top 20 regular season defenses of all time eight nine points ahead of league average and that is frankly using a method that looks at the celtics and thinks there's such outliers that it penalizes them and brings them back to the pack and it does that because it increases the performance of the model it's a generally smart thing to do but i want to note that because it's just possible that the celtics were even that much better defensively than than what we think you go to the playoffs and you lose some of that accuracy looking at the 1960s. So 1965, 66, the end of the decade, their playoff numbers don't look quite as good. They're more like 75th percentile or 80th percentile. But, I mean, Cody, to me, when I look at the estimates, I don't have too much of a change because from like 1960 to 1964, you still just have these monster playoff defenses in their runs, and I think that solidifies the fact that the Celtics were the ultimate defensive dynasty. And I said it earlier, Russell's the guy out there playing 46 minutes a game. Everyone else is playing like 28 minutes a game. So I think it gives Russell a very high floor as a defensive player in terms of his value. And then the question becomes like, what is a reasonable ceiling? Could Bill Russell have been worth like seven points per, could he have been worth an all time goat level season Every year, just by himself on defense. What's the answer to that, Ben? That's a great question. it seems like
1: when you you have these outlier seasons, you know, we've talked a lot during the series about like not tying a player's impact necessarily to their team results. But, you know, when you have the tape, when you're like watching and you're like, wow, I think that's the eighth block Russell's had this quarter. And then you just see the motor that he's moving around. He's scaring players off. You have a clip of Oscar Robertson, like passing out of a layup because Bill Russell is lurking. Like the tape is there. The, the individual, not the individual, the team level stats are there. I don't know if it's that much of an anomaly. Is it really too hard to believe that his individual impact is an anomaly as well?
0: No, I think it's, I think it's within, within the realm of possibility. Uh, The one thing I'll say is we had a conversation a couple episodes back in this series on value per possession versus value per game, because they used to play like 120 possessions a game back in the 60s, and guys like Wilton Russell would play the whole game. So I will say that just from like a pure scouting perspective, from a pure skill set perspective, when I watch Russell... I don't look at him and think, oh, yeah, he's way, way better than Hakeem Olajuwon at protecting the paint or something like that. So I do think these guys are kind of all in the same space with their skills and per possession impact. You know, it gets interesting because there's no three point line back then and the lane is more clogged. But you do see Russell conserving energy. And I, and I don't know if we made that clear a couple episodes ago when we were talking about this, but when it comes to Kareem, when it comes to Russell, when it comes to even Wilt Chamberlain or some of these other guys we've talked about, there is a trade-off between your per-possession impact and your per-game impact when you play more because the more you play, the more you have to pace yourself, the more you have to actually sacrifice. In other words, the sport in 1960 wasn't a sport where coaches said, hey, I need you to go out there for this eight minute stint and everything is going to be optimized. You're going to sp- everyone's going to sprint to set screens. You're going to space perfectly. You're going to run as hard as you can. And then we're going to give you a breather and you're going to be exhausted. The game didn't work like that. In the old days, you didn't even come out of a basketball game. The coaches like, only took you out rarely. I'm talking very old, early 20th century basketball. Like, it was not seen as a thing that you did to swap players in and out of the lineup. That is only something that came with optimizing effectiveness and optimizing this per-game effectiveness by saying, hey, if we can get this entire team system to operate at a really high level by you maxing out each possession we're better off with you playing 38 minutes a game, maxing out the possession, than you like having to pace yourself for 46 minutes a game. So it's the kind of thing where I think if you unleashed Russell for 34 minutes a game back then with what we knew today, I think your impact per possession could actually you know, really start to eclipse the Hakeem Olajuwon's of the world. But to me, they're kind of in the same range. And then when you crunch the numbers on how long you, Russell played in a game, then you do get per game a total outlier. If you're like, what the heck? He's like 40% better than the second best defender in NBA history. And that's just my middle of the road view, right? Could could he be even more? Like how high could you get? I, I don't know. Um, I tend to be a little conservative on that front. I tend not to think there's a runaway freight train where Russell's like twice as good as the next best player in the league every year. But it is it is in play that his defense well, I should say we know his defense just was that good. The question is, is it actually a little more of his teammates doing it at the end of the day in the playoffs, and so you, he loses a little value, or is Russell that good, and therefore each one of these seasons is an all-time season? So it, to to reframe that, in other words, you could say, like,
1: if Akeem Olajuwon was able to play like 47 minutes a game while keeping up his same level of impact, you might be able to actually see him generate the same kind of impact that Bill Russell
0: did. Well, they didn't. They didn't play as many possessions, um, but some something like that. Yeah, I think that's a, f- a fair way to rephrase that. If he had all those possessions to have the same per possession impact, then I think Hakeem would also. I think Hakeem was a- already one of the great, you know, peak defenders in NBA history. But I just want to be clear: when you get the style of play that the Celtics had in the '60s, had Russell's per game impact, playing the whole game basically almost never comes out of the game. Is just, I think, beyond anything we've ever seen in NBA history. So this is it's basically like, it's an outlier, basically.
1: Okay, it's a rehashing of the Jerry West Oscar Robertson conversation, essentially.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think the the where we're building toward with Russell is that there's a lot of consistency in his career. Um, you know, he becomes player coach at the end of his career, and. He's he's older. I, I don't I don't try to separate those two things. I just I almost view them as two separate people. There's Bill Russell, the coach, and then Bill Russell the player, and the coach happens to be distracted by playing the game half the time. But they won two more titles at the end of his career, which is incredible. And I, I think they won two titles uh on the back of his defense. And even if you're not super high on those last couple years, I mean I think at the very worst, you're talking about a string of really strong MVP seasons starting in the late 50s and working your way all the way through to the late 60s. And again, back then, playing like that for that period of time was great longevity. As it is, I think Russell had all-time level seasons from 1960 to 19... Let's call it 64, maybe 65. He talks about 64 and 65 are two of his best defensive seasons in his book, Second Wind. And the Celtics statistically look great in those seasons. And then, yeah, I mean, I've I said this before. I think you just got a couple of ho-hum MVP years to end his career. And then he walks off in the sunset with uh, 11 titles in 13 years. And the totality of that, Cody, I think gets you a high range for me in this project of uh, – Maybe second. I don't know if he could push if we give, we talk about that high end credit, if he could be in the conversation for second. Let's put it that way. Okay. We didn't talk about that for Kareem. Do you want to go, do you want to talk about uh, Kareem's range for that? Or do you want to save that? There's a reason we didn't talk about that. I'm sorry. For Uh. Kareem. Yeah. Um, The low end, I would say for Russell, some of the question marks, some of the, the how much could you give the credit back to the Celtics, Um, not just, Casey Jones and Tom Sanders and these other teammates that were solid defensively, but looking at the team results in the playoffs, maybe saying, like, their offense was doing a little bit more in critical moments, especially in the second half of the 60s. Sam Jones, we talked about him as a great offensive player of the 60s. John Havlicek, maybe, maybe they were getting a little more out of those players than the credit we're giving to Russell, and if you look at him in a more pessimistic view, Cody, I would take him down to ninth, so... The high end could put him in the conversation for second, the low end down to ninth. I have Russell right now as the fourth most valuable career in NBA history.
1: So basically like is the range based on the defense? Like he could make it to number two. If his defense is actually like all time level goat level on its own. And then if you maybe take a little bit off that he'd go back down to to number nine,
0: you you would take a little bit off where I have him now, not just the goat. Yeah. Not just the goat. Yeah. Um, So then we get to this weird place. And I want to talk about I want to finish this in a second by talking about eight year primes and the bet we've alluded to it in this series. I probably should have said that at the beginning of the episode. Hopefully no one tuned out because they didn't get that juicy nugget at the beginning of the episode. We're going to come back to that in a second. But the reason I bring that up is we reach a philosophical impasse now that people have been pointing out on the interwebs, on the Twitter, as we've been releasing these episodes. And that is, Cody, how much can you really get out of longevity? How much can you really value longevity? Why is this list so longevity heavy? Because number three, the third most valuable career on this list is Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan is... First all-time in the USA Today top 75 list we've talked about put out last year. First all-time in ESPN's top 76 list that they published at the beginning of this year. He's first all-time in the original Book of Basketball by Bill Simmons. He's first all-time in the update. And he is first all-time in Slam Magazine's latest top 100 list. I won't say he's unanimously considered the greatest basketball player of all time because that's not factually true. There are enough different criteria that different guys end up at the top of different lists. And there are enough big ga- big names like LeBron James, where there are huge sections of people who don't view Jordan as their, as their goat. But it really throws people when you have Michael Jordan at third, even when you talk about a career value list like this, and people know that he didn't play the same number of years as guys, the two guys ahead of him, Kareem and LeBron, we'll talk about them in a second and how they shake out. But does that feel weird to you? I mean, do you do you get this sense that like Michael Jordan as the third most valuable career is uh is wrong. It doesn't feel right.
1: Well, I I just think what's interesting is when when these other publications put out lists, I'm sure they list some kind of criteria in there. Well, I wouldn't assume that. M- maybe, I don't know. I I'm, I'm like to assume good intentions when possible, but like the way that you lay it out, like we talked about this at the beginning of the entire series. If you remember, you know, 15 years ago when we started, I think you said this should be thought of as like the boat, right? Like the best careers of all time. So you have to view the entire career. And I think when you actually like zoom in and look at the the value of all NBA seasons, the value of playing fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, twenty 16, 17, 20 seasons and still having value. I don't think it's that far-fetched to have Jordan down here. Now, if you change the criteria and you're like, we're talking about eight-year peaks or one-year peaks or three-year peaks or whatever else you want to do, if you are all of a sudden change the criteria so it's like, look, we're bringing in championships and things like that, then no, I don't think there's any way you have Jordan down that low. But that's not what this project is right now. So maybe it's because I'm so steeped in it. Maybe it's because this is all I've been working with. But when I hear it, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense based off the criteria we've been working with.
0: Well, to be very clear... The way we're adding up the value is it's a it's a just a sum, you're just adding one year to the next. And each year has a probability of improving a team's championship odds. So this is very team centric. It's very title centric. In fact, just as an aside, one of the reasons why I do so many individual player profiles and why I have so many different perspectives and rankings on slicing individual players is because it all funnels back to team building. That's what we need to understand when we understand how teams are successful in basketball. And similarly, if you are a team and you want to try to win as many titles as possible, or heck, sometimes just win one title, then it might feel counterintuitive, but you're often better off having more bites at the apple with a really good player than one or two bites at the apple with a great player. Or in these, in this case, you know, it extrapolates out to like, well, would you rather have 10 Jordan years or uh, 16 Kareem years or something like that? And I think it throws people that you're actually better off in a lot of cases having more years, because the probabilistic difference you asked about it at the very first episode, like what is the baking conversion rate between an all time season and all star seasons, you probably get like four all star seasons to equal an all time season, something like that. And again, that throws people because I think there's an intuition that people have that actually pushes down longevity. I talked about it as a big takeaway for me at the end of the original series five years ago, where I think the way we kind of internalize and intuit longevity in basketball actually continues to diminish the longevity. We, we are something about our brains. is like that nah, doesn't feel right to have a lot of bites at the apple with Reggie Miller. Like Ben, I can come with you. Reggie Miller is a good player. I can come with you that he made these all NBA teams and he's a great playoff performer. But If I put Reggie Miller on the Pacers, they're never going to be quite good enough. So wouldn't I want a guy who wouldn't I want an Elgin Baylor? Wouldn't I want a peak that you think is a little bit better that I think is a little bit better? So that pushes me over the top. How am I going to win a title if I can never get over the top? And the trap there is that we're really focusing on the one team where you need someone to get over the top. And we're not focusing on all the other teams. If you make the team worse, and you have like a 25-win team, the difference between Miller and Tim Duncan doesn't get you a title. And if you make the team better, what happens is you have other stars on the team. There are great teams that exist. Kevin Durant does join the Warriors. Kevin Garnett does join the Celtics. Scottie Pippen does play with Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman. By the nature of having a good team, you need better players. So when you get to the better teams, the difference between having... A, like, let's say the one I like to use, I'll have an article about this on uh, on our site for Patreons, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, that if you're interested in the math and the gritty math, I'll go into it. But the example I like to use, Cody, is 2015 LeBron or 2007 and 2006 LeBron. Which Which are you better off with? Are you better off with that... MVP all-time level dude who can go out and just take a team and put them in contention or a guy who's a little bit worse. I'm using LeBron. I'm using the same version of LeBron, so hopefully no one has too much of a disagreement, right? It's like 2015 LeBron we know is better, or would you rather have 2007 and 2006 LeBron so you get two bites at the apple? That's the question. It, it feels like you'd want to say The two seasons, right? Because we're still talking
1: about a very good player. And if he has the right context, I'd I'd like two chances at it. Just because there's 30 NBA teams, right? The chances of a single shot at getting that championship is so tough when you have everyone competing like that. So the more chances you get, like, you're setting yourself up for
0: success. You're saying that I've gotten a lot of messages in the last month and over the years that People that feels wrong if the other way feels right because of this pushing over the threshold. How is 2006 LeBron? He's an all-NBA player. um, And maybe that's too good of an example. Maybe I need 2005 LeBron. Whatever. Whoever, if you're listening out there, just think of someone who you think of as like an all-star or an all-NBA player and take two of those seasons and compare it to like an MVP. That's what we're talking about here. And if you do something like that, just pausing on Jordan who played so few, so many fewer years compared to the two guys we're about to talk about. Just this thought experiment of like two, two weaker LeBron seasons versus the MVP LeBron season. Another realization is that weak, MB, weak NBA teams don't win titles. They almost never do. You almost always have to be like a 55-win team or better to win an NBA championship. That's where we start talking about ways to win the postseason tournament in the NBA. If I have one of those seasons from LeBron on those teams compared to two seasons from one of these other guys, my odds are actually a little bit better with the one season because he does push me over that threshold. But I think that's where people's intuition stops and they don't think about what happens when that what happens when that team also has Ray John Rondo and Kendrick Perkins and James Posey and Ray Allen. And it's like the second you start getting Teams that would be 43 wins without you, 46 wins without you, 50 wins without you. And yes, as an aside, a ton of great championship teams would win 45 to 50 games without their best player. See Michael Jordan's Bulls. Case in point, right? Michael Jordan's Bulls. These are really great teams. When you put high-level players on really great teams, one season of Michael Jordan actually isn't as good as having like two or three or four seasons of Scottie Pippen. And, and in this case, you'd be adding Scotty Pippen to Scottie Pippen. He would be his own teammate. Um, so maybe I need a, another player of that caliber. So I'll have a detailed article. I hope that wasn't – I hope we didn't get lost in the weeds, but that's the essence of what's happening, and you multiply that over season, 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 and that's why Kareem's 18 seasons are actually way ahead of Jordan, and LeBron's 20 seasons or whatever we're up at are way ahead of Jordan, and those two guys are battling for the most valuable career in NBA history.
1: So let's let's talk about LeBron then in terms of this uh, longevity here, because I think the other aspect of longevity is people think about like like uh, you you get to a certain point like lifting weights and it becomes junk volume, right? You start hitting some reps and like your body's so fatigued that it actually doesn't count for anything and it actually might be detrimental to a point. And I think there's a few players in NBA history. And, you know, I I think Kobe Bryant's a good example is maybe his last season or two. uh, He's not adding much value. Like if you're thinking about last seasons of NBA players. I don't know about you, Ben. I'd much rather have Duncan's last season. I would much rather have KG's last season rather than Kobe's last season. So, like, they get a little bit more value from that, right? And LeBron, what makes him so special is he's entering what? So he's entering year 46 right now. And he's still, I don't know. I guess that's my question to you. Where do you see LeBron at the moment? Is he? I don't think he's his all-time level self. Is he at least like a weak MVP sort of player? Do you see him at All-NBA? Do you think he's a strong MVP? What, what is LeBron... Where is LeBron currently? Um, or even this or last
0: season, I guess I should ask. I think he's around weak MVP. And then the question is, coming into 2023, will we finally see him slide down to like All-NBA level, like we saw with Kareem around 1983 or whatever? And that's the thing. Like coming into the league in 1969, like when Kareem did to do that for 14 years is insane and maybe more comparable than LeBron coming in in 2003 and 2004 and doing that for 18 or 19 years or whatever it is. I don't think the trade-off is LeBron wasn't in college when he was 19 and 20 and 21. He was playing in the NBA. So he adds some value by starting at an all-star level when he's very young. I think Kareem would have had that all-star level and then I think LeBron gets to 2007 is maybe on the border for me but he's clearly like in the MVP level in 2008 and then he just hits this all-time level from 2009 to like oh my god Cody I don't know (laughs) 2018 but I kind of think his 2020 season is on the on the fringe there as well so he's just amassing incredibly high value seasons over an incredibly large number of years compared to what's normal in NBA history. And Kareem is like the 1970s version of that. And so, yeah, I just think when you do this kind of method, when you when you look at it from this perspective, and as we said before, this is not the only way to do it. I'm deliberately presenting this in a clear, rigid manner. So you can fold this into your own criteria. But I mean, I think we're like two MVP level seasons away for Jordan being able to get up into the... the, That is the gap. The gap is enormous, which is why I said Russell could maybe get into the number two conversation. And I feel the same way with Jordan. Jordan could maybe get into the number two conversation because Jordan was so good in such a condensed period of time and has like no fluff. The low end for me for Jordan is like four... Because you just go slightly negative on all his prime seasons and he's still, I mean, maybe you could argue Shaq or Hakeem over him, but it's like, it just doesn't take him down that far. And so you end up with Russell two-ish to nine. Jordan's like two-ish to number four. He's he's pretty locked in in that position. And that leaves LeBron and Kareem uh, as the two best careers.
1: So, okay. Well, one question from the Discord, and I want to stick on 2014 at some point here, maybe we'll see where we go with this conversation. We've been talking for a while. Uh, but a, a question from the Discord was in your initial profile on LeBron, it looked like 2014 was probably his peak offensively, but there's this like LeBron play, like what was it? Playoff LeBron is a thing, right? Like his regular season numbers are good. <laughs> like you wouldn't, you wouldn't not take LeBron's regular season numbers, but you know, 16, 17. 18, these seasons, when he goes into the playoffs, he becomes just like like a monster. Like, it's ridiculous how much his numbers shoot up. Like, his creation skyrockets, his volume skyrockets, his efficiency skyrockets. So how do you take a, a player like this that's maybe like, you can kind of see him going, uh, you know, revving it down, I guess like we were saying earlier, rev, motoring down a little bit in the regular season and upping it in the playoffs. And do you actually see like a huge offensive development from him. And I think this is a question from Dr. Murph. Dr. Murph from
0: uh from Discord. Revving it down. I like that. Yeah. That's a nice way to describe the the motor declining. Revving it down. Um I I don't actually think that 2014 is clearly LeBron's peak. So so just mm-hmm. to clarify, I think his offensive peak uh, is in, these, is in this period from like 2013, 2014, Miami, through this evolutionary period out to like 2018 in Cleveland. And I use the term evolutionary period somewhat hazily, my friend, because it's not just LeBron that continues to evolve and grow. It's the league. This is the radical shift taking place in the league where spacing explodes, three-point shooting explodes, and the league downsizes. Now, if I told you LeBron James' strengths are playing with three-point shooters around him, he's actually bigger and stronger and physically more advantageous than everyone driving to the basket. And he has a super high IQ basketball brain to figure out where more complex defenses are going to counter him. What league change would help him the most? (laughs) Anything that would open it up and give him more space to operate. And more three-point shooters to hit. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what happened. And when you look at a game from, like, 2013 and you look at a game from 2018, that pops, like, crazy to me. Uh, I did a video last year called The Evolution of LeBron where I do include some of those plays throughout the last decade, year-to-year turnover, and you can just see him using his space, using his size... And I really think, as great as LeBron James is, if the league never changed, you would have seen a more traditional downward aging arc in the 2010s, and he still would have been very good. But instead, what I think you see, Cody, as the question alludes to, is like 2013, 2014, Miami. He's just the physical tools and the passing starting to come along, and the and the shot, the jump shot, is there, and he has the post game. And he's just so well-rounded and so good. I just want to read some funny, funny numbers. Um, LeBron James in in 2014 in the playoffs averaged 32 points per 75 adjusted for opponent on plus 15% true shooting, plus 15, 32, plus 15. So he had this efficiency totally dialed in, floaters, little bank shots. Uh, obviously transition, just maybe the best all-around transition player in NBA history. And then by the time you get to like 2017, 2018 Cleveland, he actually loses lateral movement. And you can see this defensively. He loses some of his defense because of this. But it's almost more like Magic Johnson where he didn't have the lateral movement. He was just so good going in like straight line angles with a little oblique change of direction. And because LeBron's so big, he can get a shoulder into you because he's still fast. He can get by you. His jumper gets more polished and then his passing just keeps getting better and better. A couple of years ago, I did a video called um, why LeBron is peaking at a passer as a passer coming into the 2020 season, talking about how he might lead the league in assists. And he did in fact, lead the league in assists that year. We talked about he he's one of six players to lead the league in scoring and assist. So I think that period is his entire offensive peak, 2013 to 2018, but they're different. The 13-14 Miami version is different than the 17-18 Cleveland version, which is just polished and smooth and a guy who's more like magic in the sense that he's the quarterback, he's the centerpiece, the game is spaced out, he's really a power forward, playing point guard, playing lead initiator, and it almost doesn't matter what you do, He's going to find a way to make you pick your poison. The Cavs realize this. They space the floor with a bunch of shooters from J.R. Smith to Kyle Korver to the Kevin Love lineups in particular, where you have this really, really great shooting center spacing the floor. Those lineups have some of the most ridiculous playoff offensive ratings, if not the best playoff offensive ratings In NBA history, this consistent playoff domination that you talked about, 16, 17, and 18, if you look at playoff on off, and the best offenses, and the best changes, that's the period where you see LeBron pop, if not number one at the top, top two or three, I can't remember off the top of my head. And so that to me is LeBron James' evolution as an offensive player? Yeah,
1: and you've, you want to hear us like really go into the LeBron granular detail? We basically had the Le- LeBron Conference Finals episode in our previous series earlier this month, where you know we break down each one of those series in the the 2010s. There's like eight straight of them where he's incredible. But I think something that you said that might catch people off guard is that 2014 series, um, that 2014 s- playoffs, I should say, is like that's what grades out as being. Honestly, like it looks like it has a case for one of the maybe the greatest postseason scoring run in NBA history. Like thirty-two plus fifteen is is absurd. Like that basically doesn't make sense. And I think when you look at the raw numbers, it doesn't look quite as it it doesn't pop out quite as much, but the thing that you really have to understand is when we're talking about Russell, where you're talking about Jerry West and Oscar, these guys playing 125 possessions a game, that twenty fourteen Heat team in the playoffs played at a glacial eighty six possessions. Yep. 86 possessions a game. That was, that's basically what the 2004, uh, Pistons played at that's slower than the 2004 Spurs played at. And then if you look at later in the career career, like 17, 18 in Cleveland in 2017, their pace is 96. So it's a full 10 possessions, fewer than, than 2017 in Cleveland. So when you, when you adjust for possessions, that's what makes 2014 pop out. And then the finals, you may have heard somewhere, at least that LeBron was, was shut down in the finals. I I, I don't know about you all, but uh, averaging 28 points, on 68% true shooting, um, if that's shutting down, I'd I'd feel pretty good about that. I'd feel pretty good about how good I am if that's being
0: considered shut down. I thought he was actually extremely successful in that series, and the rest of the Heat struggled, and then the beautiful game Spurs were just too good, and they couldn't miss, and Danny Green and Manu Ginobili, and what a basketball team. I mean, when we look at team indicators both healthy in the regular season and in the playoffs that that 2014 Spurs team was absolute absolutely marvelous and of course they they are a great example Cody of a team for multiple years that did not have a superstar because they didn't need a threshold to go over. They just needed more good players. And every time you put a sub all-star or an all-star, an all-NBA player on there, we talked about Tim Duncan in his episode. We talked about Tony Parker last time with Allen Iverson. Uh, We somehow haven't talked about Mano Ginobili because it's just going to be like a five-hour love fest (laughs) if that happens. Uh, The brilliance of of Boris Diaw, um, that's what continues to make good teams better and makes a difference over time when you get a bunch of shots. And the Spurs actually did that. They kind of achieved that in 2012, 2013. They basically they were just a hair away from winning the title in 2014. They looked great, and they were dominant. Okay, uh, before we reveal the top career and to see whether LeBron has uh, actually passed Kareem after all this time, can we talk about the eight-year, eight-year peaks? Yes absolutely do do you have any more questions that you want to hit from the discord or anything like that i do
1: i have one more question because ben the higher-ups at thinking basketball are contractually obligating us to directly compare mj and lebron like they're they're texting me right now saying this has to happen so this is here's a question ben here's a question from the discord it's a multi multi-question question question from the discord so uh bill underscore monty asks oh bill bill monty the legend bill what a legend how does MJ's portability compare to LeBron's? You had his peak over LeBron, so does this have something to do with that portability? If LeBron is more impactful defensively, what does Jordan bring to the table with his scoring or offense that that moves his peak over LeBron's? And again, this is from Bill Monty in the, the Discord. I,
0: I, have, I have discussed this before. Um, as he said, I alluded to it in Greatest Peaks. We have an entire, years ago, I think Nate Duncan and I, uh, in one of the great debates talked about the goat and Jordan and LeBron for like two hours. So I think we probably get into it a little in there. I think what throws people sometimes when I talk like this is they, we've said this earlier in the series, they think I'm like downgrading LeBron. Um, I think LeBron has a case for the greatest peak ever relative to era. I think a number of seasons that we've talked about are just ridiculously good peaks I think offensively he has a case for the greatest player ever. He's on a short list with Michael Jordan in my head for that. Now, at their best, who do I prefer offensively? Is it is it Jordan or LeBron? If I had to pick, I'm going to go Jordan. I'm more comfortable with Jordan, and it's exactly what Bill Monty's talking about here. I'm a little bit more comfortable in Jordan with Jordan because of all the soft connective tissue in between things that allow him to play in different systems and still be Michael Jordan. And that's where people get confused. It's like, well, LeBron is an offensive rebounder. He can get a mismatch in the post and we know he's a devastating cutter. So why do you say he has no value off ball? No, it's not that he has no value off ball. It's that you like magic Johnson, like all these on ball guys, you want LeBron to be making the decisions and have the ball. Which means you need to take players and say, okay, Chris Bosh, you got to learn to shoot threes. And I don't think that was the wrong decision, by the way. I I am certainly not in a camp that says LeBron reduces Kevin Love and Chris Bosh to role players. Kevin Love is a great outside shooter as a big man. And you don't want to try to run championship offense through Kevin Love in the post when you have LeBron James on your team. And you have LeBron James and Kyrie Irving in that case. So that's not what I'm saying, but the difference is you want to play a particular style with LeBron and you want to orchestrate everything around him having the ball. And that's just always going to make it a little bit more rigid to play that style and a little bit trickier to play with other high-end players. Whereas with Jordan, I feel like you can get Michael Jordan by having him play more on ball or play more off ball. He's very quick with his actions, So he doesn't eat up oxygen. And yet at the end of the game, you're just like, what the hell? He just got, how did he get these scoring numbers? He decided, what? What did he do in the 30, 35 points per game in the series on like plus 8% efficiency. And of course, Jordan is a very good passer. Um, He carves up the defense. He's great in transition. He's great in the half court. He can play all these different styles. So I'm just a little bit more comfortable with like Jordan off ball, like the back cuts the feeling of where to go to the post, when to go to the mid-post, um, all of that is the thing that kind of breaks the tie, if you will. Or, or in other words, what I'm saying is there are teams that are constructed where you'd actually want LeBron, I think, if you were going for a higher ceiling. But overall, in general, I think I go a little bit higher on Jordan offensively just because of that. But I think they both have a case for greatest offensive player ever.
1: I don't this, this doesn't necessarily um give credence to the fact that Jordan might have the goat peak but I I just have to call out that 93 finals. I don't even know if that's necessarily Jordan's peak but you know from games 2 to game 5 in 93, he has 42 points, 44 points, 55 points, 41 points. Like that 55-point explosion, uh, Game 4, 1993, that might be my favorite Jordan game to watch. That's, like, Dan Marley, known as, like, a defensive stopper. Um, they're just switching. everything. Like, Kevin Johnson, it's your turn. Charles Barkley, it's your Like, can anyone stop this guy? And he's just like, there is no defense. Like, it doesn't exist. I'm getting to the rim whenever I want. And it when you see that and, like, the ways that he's able to score against you, it's just like... This guy just knows how to 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 improvise on the court. He can just kind of do it all whenever he needs
0: to. This is a perfect segue into my eight year rankings. Uh, and I like the eight year rankings because I feel like it's much closer to the traditional way. People value players if they're going to do an on-court kind of thing. You know, there's, there's nothing off-court about this series. None of this says anything about how I feel about these players, their personality, their leadership, their contract sizes, the economics of it, you know, whether they're going to change teams and be mercenaries. Like Kawhi Leonard doesn't get penalized because he, he just he can change teams whenever he wants. It's amazing. So let's let's talk about my eight-year rankings. We've alluded to them at other points in the series. If I were to just look at eight-year stretches... And I'm not going to be nitpicky or do ranges or anything, um, but just eight consecutive year stretches, excluding years where guys missed for injury. I would have Steph Curry at number 10. He was 16th on this list. I would have him at number 10. That's because I think very highly of his peak, his prime years, and he's now strung together enough consecutive prime years at that level at number nine I would have Wilt Chamberlain at number eight I would have Larry Bird number seven would still be Tim Duncan this is what I mean about Tim Duncan there's nothing nothing changes it's hard for people to be like ah Tim Duncan he was the greatest player ever but it's also equally as hard for people to be like Tim Duncan you can't have Tim Duncan ranked 16th that that doesn't seem right um six and five again would be Shaq and Hakeem so Shaq and Akeem kind of have an amount of longevity to commensurate with maybe the way their primes are extended peaks lined up. I would have Russell four. I would have Kareem three, which says less about Kareem and more about the craziness of the two guys ahead of them. I would have LeBron second, and I would have Michael Jordan with the best eight year consecutive run. In NBA history, and I think that is closer to more traditional rankings than just truly summing up the total of everyone's career. Just a, another Jordan thing here.
1: If you if you in your database you sort uh, all uh, inflation adjusted points per seventy five of anyone that score anyone that played over four hundred minutes in the playoffs, seven of the top ten scoring seasons in the playoffs are Michael Jordan. Like this is a dude that just like brought it every season in the playoffs. But when you look at this rank, do you, because I know you love your ranges. Is there a possibility Kareem sneaks up to number one or are you pretty convinced it's either LeBron or, or, or you're pretty convinced that Jordan is solidly at number one?
0: No, I'm convinced that Jordan or LeBron are number one. I think it would take, I think it would take a ton. I would have to go to the really high range on Kareem. Uh, I think to to get him up at the LeBron Jordan level. LeBron Jordan are really close because they just smashed together these all time level seasons for like almost a decade. So I I, w- I will say this. You know, we talked about how impressed I was with someone like Jerry West. Jerry West doesn't really have enough of these years because of the injuries. So if you took his last year in his, in his eight-year run in, like, 1970 or whatever it is, and you applied it to his, the two years that he misses with injuries in that stretch, he would be in the top ten. I think he would go to, like, seventh or eighth. You know, so there, there are ranges. Like, Kobe, Kobe doesn't make the top ten. He is another guy who, like, in 2004 and 2005 has down years. So if you put, if you gave him credit, if you gave him the same credit for those down years as like his MVP years, would he be 10th or 11th or something like that? So, so again, I didn't do this with ranges, but I just want to kind of alt- offer that perspective. It's using the exact same method we've used in this entire series, which is ranking individual, evaluating individual seasons, and then adding up those seasons. In this case, we're just stopping at eight seasons, the, the eight consecutive seasons
1: and again whatever whatever way you want to rank it to to the listeners out there, like it all depends on the criteria you're following. We just talked about longevity, their entire career, what we just talked about the last two minutes eight year peak maybe you think it's three year peak that's most important, but like whatever it is, you have to consistently follow that that criteria and I think if anything that's that's sort of what this uh Series has been unveiling, I guess.
0: Well, they they don't. Other people don't have to. They can do whatever they want. Um, we're yeah, making a We're, up gonna, as you we're go. gonna, yeah, we're gonna try to follow the criteria. So, so with that said, um, both Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and LeBron James, as we just outlined, have put together uh, a, a, a about twenty great seasons of basketball that come from different eras. So, relative to the era, I think what Kareem is able to do to start his career is worth more. LeBron but LeBron has continued to bang out season after season after season and in 2017 I think he was third when we did this and now here at the end of the road in 2022 the most valuable the best on-court career of all time using this approach in this series LeBron James has now passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and is number 1 and he's passed him Cody by a by a by about one all-time season. I mean, he has just continued, I think he passed him he passed him last year or 2 years ago, whenever. I can't do that level of math off the top of my head, but like he has just continued to put distance between these other careers in NBA history and if these were like celestial bodies out in space, LeBron LeBron is like Pluto. He's just floating farther and farther away from the sun um pluto poor pluto's not a planet anymore <laughs> that that wasn't where i expected you to end this i was gonna say what i was gonna say
1: related to basketball is it's just like lebron's career playoff scoring where it's just like if he keeps playing in a couple more seasons makes the playoffs keeps this level of play up like he's just gonna separate himself to a degree that's like possibly unassailable like unmatched and i'd unless players start playing like 25, 30 years in the future with, I don't know, maybe that happens. I doubt it, but uh, it's a pretty incredible career.
0: Yeah, and then we're right back at our philosophical conundrum where you're going to have like Michael Jordan with, as as we read, number one in all these publications. We should point out that LeBron is number two in all of those same public publications. Kareem is either third or fourth. And then Russell has a little more variability. He's third in... Book of Basketball, he's 6th in USA Today, NESPN, and he's 7th in, sla- in Slam. Hmm. The haters over it. No, I'm just the kidding. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so there's a little more variability there, but you might have something in the future where it's like, Jordan, you know, wait a second. Michael Jordan only, only played from 1985 to 1998, and he missed an entire year with a broken leg, and then he missed an entire year for baseball and he missed a third year and came back for the playoffs and he got stripped by Nick Anderson in the playoffs, who then went on to miss four straight free throws in a huge finals game against Houston. That's all he's got. That's his whole career. And it's like maybe in 2046, you're, you know, let's see, what year is it now? You're talking about Luka Doncic's 28th season and that's normal. (laughs) Just, just chew on that, which means, which means that, you know, possibly uh if you don't adjust for era you might have like the 13th best player in 2045 with a more valuable career than michael jordan because jordan only only played 10 games well <laughs> well i am mean, i'm really gonna be watching uh i don't know who do you think
1: has the the best chance i don't even know if we talked about this in the honorable mentions podcast but luca
0: jokic <laughs> Giannis. Victor, Victor. Yeah. <laughs> some, some, someone that isn't in the league yet. I mean, you know, I think what's fun about this approach, I don't know how long we've been talking, um, but I think what's fun about this approach, now that we're done with this, we can get really loosey-goosey, is you can so easily get a baseline for a career, and then... If you're not going to change your criteria radically, you go, okay, talk to me about magic. Magic, it feels weird to me that magic had to retire because of HIV. And we won't get into the politics and the fact that like maybe if another athlete came along, like an athlete had to come along like magic probably to move HIV research forward to the point where, you know, when magic got HIV, it was a couple years you had to live. It felt like a death sentence. And now, of course, it can be a totally different lifestyle and, and, and magic still seems very healthy. Um, and so we look back on that and we're like, that's weird, but maybe something like that had to happen. If it happened to another athlete and then magic got, cause you have to figure there are professional athletes that have HIV. We just don't know about it and they're fine. Um, and he played like five, six, seven more years and had a natural career arc he was great when he stopped in 1991. I mean, he was an MVP level player when he stopped. So if you give him a natural aging curve and you give him a couple more MVP seasons and a couple all-NBA seasons and a couple all-star seasons, where would, he, what, would what would he look like on a list like this? How do you factor that in? I can tell you I've run the numbers for that. And for me, he would be competing with Michael Jordan for third. Hmm. Yeah. And
1: I think that gets... We talked about it with Wilt Chamberlain. Like when he retired... Same with Bill Russell. They're both, like, MVP-level players. And Wilt, his reasoning was like, eh, I wasn't feeling it anymore. But what if Wilt just, like, decided to be Kareem before Kareem and just, like, beautifully rode off into the sunset and let himself descend into an all-star-level player? There's a chance that he's competing, but he didn't.
0: Yeah, I think the, the actual goat part of these lists is by far the most boring to me at this point. And I think the fact that, like, there are 16 top 10 players. There are you know seven guys that you can make different kinds of arguments for the best player in NBA history the understanding as we went through the list of like oh my god consistently hitting a prime and holding it at an all star level gets you this far at an all nba level gets you this much farther at an at an mvp level is like wow there's only like what 20 or so guys in league history who have hit this level and then sustained it at least based on my assessment and the things we've talked about but I mean, unless you're just out there as a fan and you're going every time someone makes a first team all NBA, they're exactly the same quality player as someone else who gets voted first team all NBA, then I think you agree that it's rare for players to to hit a certain height and sustain that height. And that to me is the fun part of like figuring out which types of players and which players in their careers have done this and what that means, you know, we talked about future facing like Giannis is just sitting at this level right now. He could win another he could win his third MVP this season. Jokic is just sitting at Jokic could win his third MVP this season. And then the fact that you can stay healthy and play at that level makes such a difference to your team. This is where the longevity part comes in, even if you want to don't want to extend it out as far as we have in this series, where it's like, what do what does the NBA look like in four years? It looks really different if. Jokic and Giannis are banging out MVP quality seasons for half a decade versus something has happened hopefully not injury but they're just not playing at that level like like Moses Malone or Anthony Davis I thought Anthony Davis would be on this list two years ago at this point in time but Anthony Davis has just not played at the same level that he played at in 2018 2019 and 2020 and that makes such a big difference to the landscape of the league when you're an MVP level player and you can't sustain it,
1: and it it might not even be something so dramatic, like thinking about Giannis, who's who's the oldest of the the Jokic uh, Doncic group. Like, maybe he starts revving down that engine at a certain point. Like, maybe he hits a point where he just can't sustain that level of defensive brilliance, and that starts bringing him down a little bit. So, those are the fun things to track. It's fun to see guys like, you know, is Luka Doncic going to add something that's going to propel himself up into an all-time level category? Is Embiid going to stay healthy during an entire playoff run with a strong squad where, you know, we watch in the playoffs and we're like, oh my god, like this dude is is absolutely in this this tier, right? So it's, it's always fun to see, like, we know these guys are really good, but what's going to happen next? What are they going to bring to the table in the next season? Is John Morant all of a sudden going to, like, he's locked in defensively and he's hitting the three-point shot, and we're like, well, this is maybe one of the best point guard seasons we've ever seen outside of Magic. And I, th- I think those are the fun things to think about with this project.
0: You know what was fun? Talking about this for 15 hours with you. <laughs> that, that was fun. Uh, we've come to the end of the road. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, if you want extras, we've got a, a ton of Patreon post shows throughout this series, uh, additional content that I alluded to. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball is the place to support us. Otherwise, uh, that is it. After 40 something players and 11 episodes and 15 hours, I really hope you've enjoyed this sl- sl- slight tour through NBA history and through all of the players that we've discussed. Cody, I do not know how to do a regular podcast anymore. (laughs) We're going to take a break and come back for the uh, season. We're going to have the season preview coming up, and then we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming cadence throughout the year. And I don't remember. I don't even know what that means. I don't know who plays for whom. I don't know how this works.
1: Yeah, I I need to learn a lot of things in a very short amount of time. I'll start learning it when they start playing. I'll watch on the screen and be like, oh, yeah, Donovan Mitchell plays for, I don't know, whatever
0: not-jazz team he plays for. He plays for a team. Rudy Gobert plays for a team. We'll have all of that coming up in the 2023 season that we are looking forward to. Hopefully, you're looking forward to that. Thanks, as always, for taking this journey with us. And of course, most importantly, I did not forget, wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day.